when is the last time that you cleaned out your wallet? Uh, my family and I are leaving for a vacation tomorrow, so it's time to clean my wallet out of all those things that bulk it up that I just don't need on vacation. And as I'm going through that process, it is amazing how much stuff accumulates in there, right? I've, I've got a bunch of receipts. I have receipts from our last vacation still in there. Uh, I have a BOGO coupon for frozen yogurt that expired six months ago. Uh, I have a little note that my son Isaac had my parents write while they were babysitting him while Amanda and I were at my 20-year high school reunion that says, Dear Daddy, I hope you're having fun at your school reunion. I'm eating popcorn and watching a movie. Love, Isaac. <laughs> and then there's all these cards, all these organizations that we have these formal relationships with. I am formally associated with the, the Met Cinema and with Midwestern Seminary. I'm formally associated with Costco and Citibank and Go to One Credit Union and the California DMV and AAA and the Children's Museum of the Sierras. Is that similar to your wallet? All these things, all these cards? You know, it brings up a question that I think is important for us. If I'm willing to formally commit myself in a formal relationship to Costco, why would I not be willing to commit myself to Christ's church? We know that the church is not just a club or an organization where we just gather with a bunch of similar like-minded people for some good times, like other organizations. We know that church is way more than a spiritual service provider where you make an appointment at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning to get your 90-minute spiritual tune-up. No, it's, it's so much more. The church is God's people. The church is God's work on earth. The church is God's plan for displaying his glory to a watching world. The church is what Acts 20, 28 describes as the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. I if you believe with me that Jesus Christ took on flesh and died in our place to pay for our sins so we could be reconciled to God, is it not reasonable then that I should commit myself to God's people, to his church? And that brings us to our topic as we're in this series of church basics, the, the basic fundamentals that we want to make sure we understand why we do what we do as a church. And that is the question is, what is church membership? Why is it important? Why should I join the church as a member? Why would our church focus on this idea of membership? You see, our church believes in the importance of, of this idea of membership, not just because it's our tradition. It's not just because of our preference. It's not just because of practicality. But we, we believe that this is important, that we would formally commit ourselves to God's people because God's word emphasizes that it's important. You see, like the words Trinity and rapture, you won't find the church, words church membership in your Bible. If you go on Bible Gateway and you pop in those terms, you're not going to find any search results. But like the concepts of the Trinity and the concept of the rapture, we also find the concept of this idea of a formal relationship with God's people. That, that's what, when I say church membership, that's what I mean. It's a form that you are committing yourself to God's people in a formal way to a local body of believers, which includes to submission and accountability to that church and its leadership. That, that's basically what we mean by those terms, church membership. 
So let's look this morning at what the Bible says about what should our relationship be with Christ's church, particularly if the Bible describes such a formal relationship as we study God's word. First, we're going to see that, that, that it's important because of the biblical examples the Bible gives of church membership. The New Testament is full of pictures that the, the picture a formal relationship with the church. We're not going to turn to all these passages for the sake of time. There's a few that we're going to have on the screen for you, and they're listed in your notes. But we see from the earliest times of the church in Acts 2, 30, uh, 20, 37, 27 through 37, that, that we see that when people, they responded to the gospel, and they were baptized, and in that baptism, that almost always they were associated with the church, except in, in areas where there was no church in missionary-type settings. People were associated into the church. And it's interesting how Acts describes how they're associated with the church. It's not in an informal way, but they were literally numbered. They were formally counted and numbered as part of the church. There were no lone ranger Christians wandering around Jerusalem. The church who knew was part of the church and who was not. Uh, and some of the examples of verses in Acts 2.41 Luke tells us 3,000 were added. In 2.47, Luke says the Lord added to their number. In Acts 4.4, 4, 4, 4, many believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. In Acts 6.1, in those days, the disciples were increasing in number. Acts 6.7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly there in the church in Jerusalem. In Acts 11.21 and 22, word reached the church in Jerusalem about the great number that were a part of the church in Antioch. And then in Acts 16.5, now the various churches throughout the area increased in number. Why this obsession with numbers, right? It wasn't just an obsession with numbers of like, look how big we are, 5,000, take that Judaism, right? That, that's not what's going on here. Why were they numbering the believers? Well, let's go back to our basic question we asked a couple weeks ago. That what is a football question, that idea when we ask, what is a church, the church is not a place, it's a what? It's a people, right? And it's not just isolated individuals, it's what we see, what's described as a church, it's the assembled people that are bound together, that assemble together. So in a, in a lot of ways, they're numbering it because the church is its membership. This numbering is the numbering of people who, who, who are supposed to be gathering together, that have committed to each other to assemble and to worship God together. And also this formal numbering helped the church to know who was part of the body, who the church was called to minister to that is inside the body. So the apostles would know who the disciples are to hold accountable. So the apostles know who is, who is committed that they're supposed to be here. Not that they were checking out here and now they've moved on somewhere else, but, but who's supposed to be here and partaking of the fellowship and the breaking of bread so that the deacons would know who are they responsible to help, who's part of the church. Yes, that they loved everyone, but there was a particular responsibility for those in the church, not for every single person in Jerusalem. That's why we see that not only the deacons being numbered in Acts 6, but also a specific list of widows that were part of the church in 1 Timothy 5. And we also see that in the early church, when Christians left the city and they left their church, maybe it was for a new job, maybe it was for a missionary endeavor, maybe it was for some other reason, they would often take a letter of commendation to the church in the new city that they're going to. We see this in Acts 18 and Romans 16 and Colossians 4 and 2 Corinthians 3. Why? What were these letters used for? Well, you see, it's so that the new church knew 
who had had a responsibility to shepherd and, and to care for. It's almost like the, other, the first church is, is, is telling the second church that it's your responsibility now to, to care for these precious souls. That, that, that there was no lone rangers, that they were to be cared for and encouraged in the Lord. I mean, just imagine, just do a thought exercise with me. Imagine what it would be like to love God so much and to love his people so much. Imagine how radical it would be that in your, when you, you have to move to a new city for a job or some other opportunity, that you find a church first, right? That, 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 that God is not third or fourth or fifth in your moving priority, that God, just like anything in your life, is first in your priority. So you're saying, where are we going to worship first? How are we going to not be commuting an hour to church first so we can engage in fellowship, maybe even having our, our church write a letter for you so that you can jump right into fellowship and service and being shepherded as part of that new church family. You see, there was no pinball Christians in the New Testament. There were no floating Christians who professed Christ and were baptized and not part of a church. That, that pretty much every example that we have of Christians in the Bible, they were formally associated with a local body of believers as members of a local church. Now, those are different snapshots, but I want to spend some in-depth time looking at a, a picture of this. Turn to 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> Turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the local church in the city of Corinth. And this was a letter was in response to a previous letter that the church had sent him, as well as some responses he had to some different reports that he heard going on in the, in the Corinthian church. And he addresses one of these troubling reports in 1 Corinthians 5. Let's read this together. Let me read verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So here's the situation in this church in Corinth. The implication of what Paul is describing is that there's one, a person in this church, a man in this church, who has taken his, his, his father's wife, which is probably his stepmother, and is living with his stepmother in an incestuous sexual relationship. And Paul's saying, not even the Corinthian pagans do that. Now, the Corinthians were not exactly a virtuous society. Not even the sexually licentious pagan Corinthians would live like this. I mean, the pagan world would look at what's going on in the church and go, man, that ain't right. If there was social media of the ancient world, there'd be pe people posting saying, we are all about sexual freedom here in Corinth, but that's just wrong, right? That, that's, what that's what's going on here in Corinth. Now, as troubling as this action is, and I think we can all agree that this incestuous relationship is troubling, Paul doesn't focus on that relationship. Paul never even directly addresses the man in the entire letter. Instead, Paul is more concerned with the, what? The church. Paul's more concerned with the response of the church than the immorality of the man. It's like Paul is saying to them, I heard this report, and that immorality is bad. Yeah, it's bad. But you know what's even worse than that guy's immorality? Is what you're doing as a church. Is the way that you've responded to it as a church. That's what's really serious here. 
instead of mourning over this sin, instead of taking action about this sin as a church, Paul says that they're being arrogant. Now, he doesn't clarify how they're being arrogant. Is it the idea that they're being arrogant in spite of what's going on? Like he's saying, that's going right on in front of you, and you're still arrogant? Or maybe it's he's being arrogant because they're being arrogant because of what's going on. Maybe they're thinking, man, isn't it great to be free in Christ and we can just do whatever we want now? He doesn't clarify which one it is, but either way, the point is not that. The point is that they should have done something about this testimony that is tarnishing the gospel, that is tarnishing the reputation of the Savior. And and Paul's concern, and we're going to see in the rest of the chapter, is that the church looks just as immoral as the world. See, Paul's concerned, and what he's going to say is it makes it look like having Jesus makes no difference in your life. Yeah, we got Zeus, you got Jesus, and we're all the same anyways, right? That's the problem. I mean, look at verses 3 through 5. Paul goes on to say, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul's saying he's present in spirit, which means that Paul is acting like as if he's right there with the church in Corinth, and he calls that when the church is assembled, when they're gathered together as the church body, they're to remove this man from the church. This is emphasized. Four different times in 13 verses, Paul calls for this removal. And notice, though, Paul doesn't say, I've removed him. Now go do what I'd already done. No, 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 he doesn't say that, right? He doesn't unilaterally make this decision. He calls for the church to do this. It's important. This is the job of the church. In the context of the church assembled together, they are to remove this man from membership. But here's what's important. Why? Why are they to do this? Look at that there. They're to remove him from the church. It's not that they're saying that he can't come to church, but they're to remove the church's affirmation that he's a Christian. We would say removed from membership. Because he's living not like part of the church, he's living like part of the world. He's living like he's part of that worldly sphere of Satan. That's what his life's demonstrating. And so why are they doing that? They're hoping that as they do this, the result is, as Paul Paul says here, the destruction of his flesh. Well, what does that mean? Well, the destruction of that carnal sin. They want to get him to repent. Because what does a Christian do that demonstrates that we're Christians? Is we repent. For the ultimate purpose of what? So that he may repent and be saved on the last day. That's a sign of the, what does it mean to be a Christian? To be a Christian means we recognize that we are sinners, that Jesus has died for our sins, and we are those who repent of those sins that Jesus has died for. You know, in our culture, we often think discipline is unloving. But it's the exact opposite that's true. A a loving parent gives discipline to their children so they don't destroy their lives, right? A a loving coach gives healthy discipline to his team, his athletes, to help them to be the type of athlete that they want to be. A loving God gives discipline through his church to his people to lead them to repentance and salvation on the last day. And then Paul gives this theological reasoning why. Why should the church take this so seriously? Look at verses 6 through 8 with me. Paul writes, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
Cleanse out the whole leaven, old leaven, that you may be a new lump, and you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What's going on here? What's this with leaven and bread? I don't know, man. I was a bachelor for years. I lived off of macaroni and cheese and top ramen, right? So I, I had to do a little, you know, a little study on this. When you, when you make bread, and people in the ancient world, they'd make bread, and they still do today, they would keep back a little portion of the last week's dough. And that last week's dough, they would let ferment. And then they would add that fermented dough to the new batch of dough, and that, that, that fermented dough would then spread that fermentation through the entire new batch so that the entire new batch would be, would be light, give it lightness to the whole new batch. Well, well, that spreading is what Paul uses as a metaphor for sin. And what he's talking about here is that when the church tolerates within the church blatant, unrepentant sin, not just sin of any, just not just any sin, because we're all sinners, right? We all sin. But when there's sin that we're refusing to repent one, that is obvious, outward, and unrepentant, then it's going to spread through that whole community. And I think you could say spread, and it can, can affect the community and be a temptation, but in the context here, it spreads and affects the whole community. It spreads and affects the testimony that entire church has to the watching world. So when Paul says cleanse the leaven, he's talking about removing the unrepentant sinner from the church body so that the church can be a new lump, that we're living out the new life in Christ. He says, you already have that, what you already are, that we're living out saying, when you have met Jesus, there is something different about you. There's something different about me. We, we, we celebrate this festival, is Paul's language, by living out this new life that Christ has given us, which entails that we've turning from our old sinful habits, and, but, and we're living our new life in Christ. In other words, there's a difference between being in Christ and what your life was, old life was like before Christ. It's a slow growth. It's a slow growth of sanctification, but there's a difference. We can say that when we've met Jesus, and he saved a wretch like you and like me, my life's different because I love this Jesus who saved me. I, I, we live differently because we love Jesus, because he is the Savior. So there's a difference between the community in the church of those saved by Christ that should be markedly different from what goes on in the world outside the church. You see Paul's logic here as he builds this? He goes on as he finishes this chapter. Let's read verses 9 through 13. Where Paul wrote this. He makes his point clear here. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or viler or drunkler or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. You see what Paul's doing here? He's reemphasizing this, this difference, this division. Uh, there's a clear distinction between those inside the church and those outside the church. So when Paul and the Bible talk about being careful who you associate with and, 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 and those in immorality, he's not talking about people 
outside the church. In fact, my friends, those are the exact type of people that are outside the church and living in an immoral, immoral lifestyle that we need to befriend, right? Those are those people that are living those lifestyles that, are, are, that work with you or that are in class with you and they're neighbors with you. Those are the people that we need to reach out to, to the people in open sexual relationships, to the people with LGBT lifestyles, to the people on their fourth or fifth or sixth marriage. Those are the ones that we need to get to know. We need to reach out to. We need to love. Because you know what? The primary problem is not their lifestyle. It's not that we need to fix their lifestyle. It's that they need to get to know Jesus. Right? The problem is not the lifestyle they're living. The problem is that they don't know Jesus, who can do that inward transformation of the heart. And how are they going to get to know that Jesus if you don't befriend them? If we don't go and love on them and introduce them to Jesus, befriend them, have them over for dinner with our families and, and tell them about this Jesus who changed our lives. Who else is going to tell them? But it's different between that, those outside the church, Paul says, and those inside the church who bear the name of a fellow brother or sister in Christ as those formerly inside the church. See, Paul says there's two different kinds of judging. There's a judging we should not do. There's a bad judging. That's what Matt, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 7, right? That type of final judgment where I'm making a judgment on your soul. That, that's the judging we're called not to do. But there's a judging that we are called to do here. There's a bad judging and there's a good judging. There's a judging the church is called to do. And it's the type of judgment that makes a clear boundary between the church and the world. That's what he's saying here, that there's a type of judgment that would result in putting this man outside the church because he's living as one, as someone would live outside a relationship with Christ because he's refusing to repent of his sin. And notice, back to our point of the sermon, you can't put someone out of the church unless there's a clear and visible boundary of what it means to be a part being inside the church. The idea of expelling out of the church only makes sense in the context of a visible and formal belonging to the church. We call that church membership. You, you can call it different things, but that formal inside belonging. See, this visible distinction between inside and outside does not make sense if we're talking about the universal church, right? The universal church is every single believer that as God sees them, he sees into their hearts and knows if they're saved or not. Well, we can't as a church make inside and outside decisions on something God only sees, right? So Paul's not talking about an inside and outside of the universal church. He's talking about a firm boundary of an inside or outside of the local church. This entire chapter does makes no sense unless there's a visible and clear distinction that demonstrates the difference between those inside Christ church and those outside Christ church. It, it, it makes only sense when there's a visible distinction between the two. Such, such correction that Paul calls for assumes that it's important for the person to know if they're a member of a church. It assumes that the church knows who, is, who are the other members of the church that they're responsible for. It assumes that the, it's important for the world to see who is part of the church and who is not, and who is the church declared that they are not of us by the way that they're living. See, church membership's important because the scriptures talk about that there needs to be a clear, visible boundary between those coveted inside the local church and those outside the local church as a testimony to the watching world. You know, I've, I've always joked, so you don't have to laugh, I know you've heard it a million times, that, that yes, the words church membership are not in the Bible. 
But if we want to be really biblical with our ter- ter- terminology, if you're saying, Craig, you just have to, whatever the Bible says, you have to say, I guess we have to call them church insiders. Because that, oh, you laughed anyway, thank you. Um, <laughs> because that's what it says here, right? Paul's talking about those inside, those outsides. I don't, I, I, I don't, I'm not a fan of the term membership, but I'm really not a fan of calling them insiders, right? Could you imagine us saying, next week we're having our church insiders class? That's just pretentious, right? But even more than terminology, do you see why God is calling for this, this formal and visible distinction between inside and outside? That's what's more important here because the church is what displays the glory of God to the watching world. That's why Paul is so concerned about the situation in Corinth. It's not because Paul's a fundamentalist, but because when the church looks just like the world, when there's no boundary and there's no distinction and, and the church looks just like the world or worse than the world, then we tarnish the gospel, that we tarnish the reputation of the Savior that we are proclaiming. You see, when Oakhurst EV Free Church, when we admit someone to membership, it's like we're testifying to the world. We're testifying to our community. This person speaks for Jesus. It's not just if someone visits our church, we're saying that, but that's what we're doing when we, we go through the membership process. It's not that this person's a perfect person. We're not. It's not that this person has accumulated enough good deeds. We haven't. But it's that this person knows and has believed and lives out the gospel that they are great sinners saved by a great Savior and is going to tell other people that same truth. That's not the same case for everyone who attends, right? Our, our gatherings here this morning on Sunday morning, when we do different various ministries and activities, they are welcome for anybody to come, right? And, and, and so there's something different there that, because our gatherings are welcome to both people who, who are followers of Jesus Christ and those people who are not followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you're with us this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to say welcome. We are so glad that you are here this morning. You are welcome to join us at any time. We would love to tell you more about this Jesus. And I hope that I'm being clear about what a Christian is what, and what it's not. What does it mean to be a Christian? What it means to be a Christian is to recognize that all of us are sinners. You, me, you know, with Larry here, right, Larry? We're all sinners. <laughs> but in, in that sin, we have committed cosmic treason. We have committed rebellion against God. But the good news for you, for me, right, Larry, the good news is coming, is that Jesus came. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay for our sin in our place as our substitute. He bore the burden and the punishment that we deserve for our sin when he died on the cross. And he rose again after three days to offer us new, everlasting life. He offered us a forgiveness of our sins. He offered us the ability to be reconciled with God. We can have the relationship with God now that pictures the relationship we're going to have with God for eternity in heaven. That, that, that we can be reconciled to God's people, the church. We can experience now the fellowship of what's going to characterize heaven and the fellowship of all of God's people. And, and I'd love to invite you to be a part of that, to, to, to experience that forgiveness, to be a part of his church. And let me give you the best news. There's nothing you can do to earn or deserve that. It's a free gift, completely by grace. If you would trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and repent of your sin and trust in him as your Lord and Savior, you can be saved just even today. 
If you want to know more about this forgiveness, know more about the Savior, please don't leave this morning without talking to someone. We, we want to answer your questions. We want to tell you about the Savior. Talk to the person who brought you this morning. Talk to any member of our church. I'll be at the back of the sanctuary afterwards. I'd love to meet you and, and, and answer any of your questions you have about the Savior. And, and for my Christian brothers and sisters here this morning, do you see how this distinction between the church and the world, how, how this idea of church membership is God's design for his glory as a testimony to the watching world to, to invite them into this, 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 this community of forgiveness in the church? But that's not the only reason why membership is important. And we're running down on time, so let's get moving. We're going to look over at Hebrews 10. I want to look at a couple examples of not only how we see the picture of church membership, not only the examples of church membership, but also we see a biblical expectation of church membership. We see this throughout the New Testament, but in, to, to, to respect your time, I'm only going to look at two verses out of Hebrews where we see examples of how God expects us to have this type of relationship with God's people. We, Dave read for us the larger context of this this morning in Hebrews 10, that because of verses 19 through 21, because we have confidence to come before God in light of what Jesus did for us, because Jesus is our great high priest that's reconciled us to God, therefore, look at verse 24, he continues of his, therefore, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here's the question for you guys. How does the author of Hebrews know that it's the habit of some to neglect meeting together? In other words, how does the church here know that people were neglecting to come to church who were supposed to be there in church? How, do, how can he say this? Well, the only way that the author of Hebrews can say these things is that the church, is like we would say as a church, we know Jim's supposed to be here in church, and we have not seen Jim. Right? It, it, that's the only way you could see that, that the church, the only way the church can say this is the church knew who was supposed to be there. If the church knew who had committed, this is my church, I'm committing to be here, hold me accountable to that. Who was part of the church and who might be visiting the church and not yet committed. Right? That there's a, the church knows these things. And it's actually amazing to realize that the church is actually calling out those people with those commitments. The, 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 the Bible's calling out actually people for their church attendance. Now the question's why? right? Like, uh-oh, here comes the hammer. But here's the thing. The, the author of Hebrews is not saying, good Christians go to church, so go to church! Right? That's not what he's saying here. No hammer. Look at the reason why he's saying this is a problem. Look at verse 25. By neglecting the assembly, these people were not doing what? It's not about just showing up at a building, but they were not doing what? They weren't encouraging one another. You can't encourage other people if you're not with those people. That's just logic, right? But they might say, I encourage people all the time. I met someone in the market the other day. I encouraged them until they wanted to leave. But that's not the argument here. The problem is not that these people were not generally encouraging people. The problem is that they had committed themselves to this people that they were supposed to be assembling with. That they had promised, I'm going to love you and encourage you and stick by you no matter what. And they weren't there. You see, who does the Bible call us to serve and encourage and stir up love and good deeds for? Well, yes, for everybody. We're to do and to love everybody. But you know what? Sometimes when we say, I'm just an encouraging person, I encourage everybody. 
it can be an excuse to not encourage anyone in particular. Do you see that? It's easy to encourage those people who are easy to encourage. It's easy to encourage those people you like. It's easy to encourage those people when you only have to see them once, uh, once a month or once a quarter or once a year. But to be an encouraging person like God's calling us here, it means that you've committed your life to fellow sinners, to fellow weak people, and you're going to stand by them. They're going to annoy you. They're going to frustrate you. They're going to sin against you, and you're going to love them, and you're going to serve them, and you're going to encourage them because you have committed your life to them in the local church. See, we can't fulfill this command and all the other one another commands. There's over 40 of them in the New Testament unless we've committed ourselves to a particular group to love in that way. But that's not all. Oh, that's not all. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. Flip over a couple pages. 13, 17. Let me read Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, where the author of Hebrews writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So out of our love for God, we submit to the authorities that God has put in our life, particularly the spiritual authorities. Now, here's an important question. Who exactly are the spiritual leaders we're supposed to submit to? I mean, let's be crazy this morning. Let's be crazy and like, ask a question like, let's, how do we do what God actually says, right? How do we do this? Does this mean that every single spiritual leader you meet, you are to obey? You meet, let's say you meet, uh, uh, you see a pastor on TV and he tells you something. Well, you have to obey that. Let's say you're on vacation or you're in the grocery store and someone tells you they're an elder from the church. You have to obey that. Is that what he's saying? Anyone who's a spiritual leader, you have to obey. No way, Jose, right? Is it saying here that you get to obey those leaders who you like to obey? That you want to obey? Oh, that one sounds good. I guess I'll do that one. No, because then you're not really obeying anyone, right? Except yourself. It, it clar it's clarified here. Who does it say that you're supposed to obey? Verse, or chapter 13, the ones who are what? keeping watch over your soul. You guys see that? The Bible assumes that every Christian is in a formal and accountable relationship with some type of spiritual leadership who's going to keep watch over their soul, that they're going to submit to, and that they're going to, they're going to keep accountable with, and that in turn, that person is keeping watch over their soul. Which means, if that's going to happen, both the Christian and the leader have to understand that that's the relationship they have. There has to be some sort of communication, some sort of commitment to be able to have that. It's not just I'm sh I showed up once. It's not just I show up to Bible study, but there's some a formal commitment of uh, you, are, you are my leader. I'm going to submit to God's leadership through you. And, and yes, I'm committing to watch over your soul. That's what we call church membership. And let me say, do you see any exceptions in this verse? You know what? This includes pastors and elders. Pastors and elders, if they love God, they need to show their love to God by obeying God's word here in Hebrews 13, 17. There are no exceptions, including for me as your pastor, as one of the elders here. God tells me that I need leadership in my life that I am committed to, and they are committed to me to watch over my soul. I need to submit to our other elders in the church. I am a member of Oak Ridge Free Church. Those are my elders. Those are my spiritual leaders that I submit to. And those are the ones who have committed to me that they're going to keep watch and be responsible for my soul. And then look at the end of the sentence in verse 17. 
is spiritual leaders. This is written, I guess you could say, inferring for spiritual leaders. We keep watch over souls as those who will have to give an account. I'll tell you what, as a pastor, I take that verse very seriously. And I know our elders do as well. See, the flip side to obey your elders is that leaders will have to give an account for the sheep that they have committed to watch over their souls. Now, the question is that we have to ask as elders is, whose souls will I be held accountable for? Am I accountable for everyone I meet? Am I accountable for everyone who visits the church? Now, I am responsible to love everyone I meet. I am accountable to love every single person that God brings in my way and every single person God brings to the door of that church. But Hebrews is talking about a different relationship here. Hebrews is talking about this type of formal relationship where people have asked me as an elder of this church to watch over my souls. And, and they've agreed to follow me as, as their spiritual leader. And that formal relationship is how we obey God here in Hebrews 13. It's how we obey God and, and loving one another in Hebrews, or, uh, Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 13. And that's what this formal relationship is what we call church membership. See, church membership is important because without this formal, re, formal context of church membership, it is impossible to obey God's commands and live out the Christian life as God has designed. The Bible's description for the Christian life doesn't make sense without some sort of formal relationship with other Christians in the local church. As we're getting, getting uh, wrapping up here, let's play a little game. We're going to play a little game called formal or informal. Let's look at a couple metaphors the Bible uses for the church. And you tell me if it's a formal relationship or an informal relationship. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 16 says we are God's building. Do the bricks of this building have a formal or informal relationship with each other? It's formal, right? Can you imagine a brick in your house saying, I might hang out here, but I'm not really part of this building. Or, I'm my own brick. I'm not going to commit here. I might not be here next week. 1 Timothy 3.15, we are the family or household of God. Does the, does the family or household have a formal or informal relationship? It's formal. My kids bear my name, right? My kids bear all my weird idiosyncrasies. Right? You want to take my kids, you have to go through the courts. It is, it is a formal relationship. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 7, 27 says, We are the body of Christ. Do the parts of your body have a formal or informal relationship with each other? It's formal. Your thumb does not have an informal relationship with your hand. I'm not really with him. Right? How about Ephesians 5, 22 through 32? We are the bride of Christ. Is that a formal or informal relationship? Oh, that's formal. I do not have an informal relationship with my wife, right? If I want to break that, it requires a court document, splitting half our stuff, and being hunted down and shot by her family. <laughs> and Jesus' favorite metaphor for his people is his flock. He talks in Matthew, and he says that he knows the exact number in his flock. It's 100 sheep. He knows if one is missing. It's numbered. He knows the exact amount formally associated with his flock. And as under-shepherds, we should know exactly the exact number who's, formula, who's associated with our flock because we're called to chase them down as well. Do you see a pattern in God's word this morning? See, we're not emphasizing church membership because we just want you to add another membership card to your wallet. We're not, we're not, we're not, we don't do that. We don't have cards, so don't worry about that. And it's not just because we find it practical for our church because we believe it's important because God's word says it's important for you. 
It's exemplified in God's word throughout the New Testament. It's God's way of visibly marking the distinction between those inside and those outside the church as a witness to the watching world. It's God's way of building up the body as we commit to love one another. And it's God's way of keeping watch over our souls. And and can I share from my heart just for a minute as one of your pastors and elders here at Oakridge CBC Church. Steve Riley gave me some great counsel that it's, it's, yes, this is biblical, but also we are sharing this not because it's just it's something we just want to get out there because we love you. I realize that I can be labeled as the membership guy in our church. Some of you are laughing, know that. But I want to say, first of all, that this is not just my conviction. This is the conviction of our elders because this is what the Bible says. And, and, and it's not just a conviction of me and the elders because it's convenient for me or it's good for the elders. We emphasize this because we love God and we love you. And we believe it's for your best. In many ways, I'm still the 20-something-year-old kid who Pastor Ray Castro, when he was a pastor here, came up and asked if I'd lead a Sunday school class. And I said, that'd be great. And he says, you have to become a member. And I go, what's that? And he told me, and I go, why? But after studying God's word and seeing it worked out as a pastor here over the last 10 years, I'm convinced that there are good reasons why God tells us to do what he says in his word. And a formal commitment to his people is no different. You see, when you, commit, when you don't commit yourself to God's people in the church, and I mean really commit, not just I'm going to be there and, on, on, on how I want to, but I'm, I'm committing to you in a formal way. It's really you who could suffer. You're keeping God's people and your relationship with God's people at arm's length from you. You, you, you are keeping yourself in the spiritual leadership and the spiritual body that God has designed to keep watch over your soul. And I don't want that for you. I want you to experience all the blessings that God has for you in the Christian life. So whether you've been attending our church for three months or over three years, and if you love Jesus, and if you love the people of Oak Ridge Free Church, would you consider making a, a commitment that this would be your church? Don't do it for me, please. Examine the scripture, and you'll see God's desire for you to have a commitment to his people. Do it for the Savior and do it for yourself. We just had a membership class, but if you're expressing interest, we will, we will get your name on a list, and the next time we have a class, we will make sure that you, it works around your schedule as well to make sure that everyone's in town when we have that class. Would you consider that? And if you already are a member of Overcrest TV Free Church, let's live like it, right? Let's just not say, great, I'm on the Excel sheet. Right? That's, that's not what it means to be a member. It means to live out that commitment we've made to love and to encourage one another. So I want to end just by a way of reminder. Turn your, your note page over, and I want to just read real quick what it looks like, that what, what we have covenanted to, to live as members to one another. And I actually would love for you to take this page over lunch today, if you go out to lunch or today, tonight is dinner as a family. Just read through it and say, how in this next month Can we just seek to excel, to to love each other still more in this church, to live out the ways we've committed to do that to each other? And let me read these to you. This is what we've committed as members here. We will endeavor by divine aid to live in a way that consistently honors Jesus Christ, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, there is a special obligation to now lead a new and holy life. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercise affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. 
We will not forsake the assembly of ourselves together nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will rejoice with each other's happiness and we will endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will endeavor to bring up such as may be at any time under our care and the nurture and admonition of the Lord and by a pure and loving example seek the salvation of our family and friends. We agree with the statement of faith of OEFC and refrain from propagating any scriptural interpretations that differ from those set forth in it. We will submit to the authority of the church leadership for they are keeping watch over our souls as those who will have to give an account. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will cheerfully contribute and regularly to the support of the ministry for the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. And we will, if and when we move from this place, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and principles of God's word. Out of our love for the Savior, let's live out this commitment we've made to one another as members of this church. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we who were once not a people, once who were, were aliens and strangers, have been reconciled to you and reconciled to your people. And Father, pray that you'd help us to love each other more, that we would have a visible picture of you, the invisible God, by the way that we love one another, your people, the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.